today on the Data Chaos Podcast, we're going to have a conversation with Mark Roberts. Mark is the co-founder and chief architect of Propel. Prior to that, Mark spent seven and a half years at Twilio, where he worked on programmable video and programmable wireless. Mark has a ton of experience building for scale and shipping near real-time data analytics, and has a great product sense for building developer-friendly APIs. I hope you enjoy the conversation we had on architecting Propel and the caveats around event-driven architectures. Enjoy the listen. Mark, welcome. It's great to see you. How are you? Hey, good morning. Great to see you. Doing good. I'm here on a sunny day in Berlin. We don't get a lot of those this time of year. As I said, middle of February, it's usually pretty cold and uh, snow, right? Yeah, but today, beautiful sunshine. A little chilly, but all good. Perfect. So you are now the chief architect at Propel Data. Give us a little background. How'd you get here? Yeah, so actually I came to Propel from Twilio. That's actually where we met working on the voice and video products there. I was there for about seven and a half years in total. At one point, working at Twilio, I decided to make a change. I actually moved from San Francisco to Berlin to help work on a new product Twilio was launching, their SuperSim product as part of the wireless organization. So I've been in Berlin for a little more than three years now. It was, geez, almost a year and a half ago, I think, that we were talking and, and actually I decided to make a change and join Propel. And We're super glad you did. No, it's great. Yeah, me too. It's been a lot of fun. But before we get on to Propel, let's go back a few years. So uh, you just come out of college, right? And then you join Twilio. Was that about right? Yeah. And what was the first 2013? What was the first team you were on there at Twilio? We called it the client team at the time. So it was kind of a sub team of the larger voice organization. And the client team, what'd you guys do there? So we worked on the WebRTC client that could run in the browser, could run in a mobile app that would actually allow Twilio's customers to build voice-powered experiences. So we had customers who would allow you to basically take calls from the browser. For example, they were building call centers and different kinds of applications using WebRTC in the browser or on the mobile app. And then from there, what was the next projects after that? Well, video came pretty soon afterwards. So it went through a few different iterations, but we knew like there's a lot of potential for video. We can take this voice SDK that we have, we can evolve it, we can support video, multi-party video chat. And so we we got building on that. Actually, I think you came in to build that and then we got connected. That's correct. Yeah. So I joined when I joined Twilio in 2013, I think. I had two goals at the time. It was open the Mountain View office and start the video team. And I think that's right around the same time. Not long after that is when I think you joined, when we kind of joined forces, we took the client team, which is the voice client team, and then brought that into the newly formed video team. And then you started working on uh, what I remember, the JavaScript SDKs. Yeah. Um, and really took that, I think, helped to kind of the, the next level. It was kind of cobbled together, I think, at first. And uh, you brought in a very sort of strong design opinion, specifically like with an eye towards API and started, you know, developer friendliness, I guess is the best way to put it. And started building yeah, that I thing. Think, I think you, me, and, and our product manager, Rob Brazier, working together, landed on a really nice 
API and object model. The video SDK centered around rooms and participants and video tracks and audio tracks. And from what I remember, customers found it pretty nice to work with. Now, troubleshooting it was uh, another issue. And actually, one of the things I wanted to talk about today, because as you know, video is a challenging experience. Even here today, we're chatting on Zoom. Think about all the, the minutes wasted, just troubleshooting. Why isn't my video working? Why can't I hear the audio? All of those challenges we actually had when we were supporting. Well, I remember uh, first putting it out there. Case. Yeah, and putting it out there, like we were kind of largely flying blind, right? Because the clients, you know, that were essentially building on top of Twilio Video were embedding RSDK into code that they wrote, into yep. browsers that they don't control. And right. we really didn't get a whole lot of telemetry back from that at the time, at least in those first iterations. No. So these video SDKs that we built and the voice SDKs, they're all open source. They're on GitHub. And a customer would write to us and be like, hey, why, why is it that in Firefox version X, I'm not getting video? And the first question we would ask for a long time was just, can you share client-side logs with us? Or can you dump the WebRTC stats from the browser and, and share them with us? I mean, just trying to explain really... that, though. Just remember, like, having to explain oh, that man. to a customer. Like, hey, can you start a video call, open up your browser, go to the location, type Chrome colon slash slash WebRTC dash internals, and then send yeah. that to us. <laughs> right. Yeah. That I mean, already that requires a lot from the customer. And that's assuming they can even reproduce. One of the challenges here is just reproducing the issue because, as you mentioned, customers are embedding our SDK in their code, and we try our best, but there could be legitimate bugs in our SDK. There could be bugs in the customer's code that's using the SDK. There could be bugs in the browser. That actually happened a lot. Firefox or Safari or Chrome would ship a change that unintentionally broke the WebRTC functionality. And then above that, there's even the kind of like combinatorial explosion of, is this codec supported in this way with this browser? And there are just so many opportunities for failure. We would also see customers who deployed their application to, I don't know, a particular region where stun traffic was blocked, for example. So there was really a lot that could go wrong. And for a long time, we were relying on our customers to try to reproduce that, try to get us sample logs that would help us diagnose the problem. And pretty quickly, we realized that that just wasn't going to work. So, I mean, obviously, I know the story of how this got solved. Why don't you tell me your version of kind of like how that went? Because I remember it kind of, you know, we were kind of we were chatting in the halls, not really in the halls, because there weren't really halls in, up in the city, the office in San Francisco. But uh, we'd started to have this discussion and sort of like formulate some ideas around the type of events that were important to us, the type of events that we needed. And we sort of like loosely like kicked around some ideas of, all right, how would we get those events, you know, out of the browser and back to Twilio? Yeah. So I think about it in, in two parts. I think about what are the events we want? What's the object model we're trying to represent in the events? What's the information we want to expose? And then I also think about the actual technology we use to expose that. So just starting with the events, 
I think all the effort we put into the API design up front was really beneficial to the events because we had these really clear nouns and verbs. We had rooms that participants could join or disconnect from, and we had tracks that they could add and remove. And so already we and our customers were comfortable talking about participants connecting, participants disconnecting, a track being added, a track being removed. And so events were pretty front and center in our API design. It was really just a matter of us taking those events, adding a few additional diagnostic events that would be useful for troubleshooting, and then representing that in a clean, consistent schema that we could pipe up to our backend. Actually, if you look internally in the, um, well, in the halls of Twilio, there's like a repository where we have all the JSON schemas for those events that we were publishing in the SDK. So we actually took those JSON schemas, we added some code to the SDK, we allowed users to opt in or out of this, this telemetry we were publishing. And basically these events would all get published over a WebSocket to our backend. They'd be joined with some server-side events because ultimately the server also has a full picture of what's going on that needs to be taken into account. And then, actually, this this is where it's kind of hazy to me mm-hmm. because I think I remember early on there were some discussions of Kinesis. Yeah. I think there were some discussions of Kafka. I think we tried a few. Maybe you could remind me what we published these payloads on. Yeah, I mean, I think definitely remember the sort of the edge service that we had, which we used that WebSocket and we set those JSON payloads over. And then, you know, 100% correct, we would sort of decorate those payloads with additional information. So we'd know who the customer was, we'd get their account information, whatever other kind of server-side stuff that we wanted to, to expand into that payload. But I, the way I remember it is we had never used Kinesis before and like Kafka was kind of like this, this behemoth of a thing that had all this other traffic on it. And at least the way that I remember it is you're like, hey, how do I like how do I do this Kinesis thing? And I was just like, well, go in the console. Let's in AWS and let's just get it spun up and start sending events and let's see if it works. And I think like, you know, you went off, wrote some code, came back, I think probably like the next day, maybe or a few hours later. And we kind of had you had that thing just all wired up and like the events were starting to go into Kinesis. And we started sending it, you know, probably to an S3 bucket or you know, maybe we had some, I don't remember what we did with the consumers at that point. Well, I thought we landed it in Elasticsearch, actually. We did eventually, right? Because I remember the team down in Mountain View were kind of going back and forth between, could they use Spark to sort of process those payloads and, and derive insights from it? And then they ended up settling on Elasticsearch because that just I think structurally made a lot of sense. You could create an index. You could take sort of structured, semi-structured JSON, uh, land that very easily inside of Elasticsearch. And then it gave you that, you know, kind of like difficult to learn at first, but like a very powerful query language that you you could use like Kibana for and and, and start pulling data from that. Querying in Kibana was very useful to have yeah. but i can't tell you the amount of time i spent struggling with the queries there because it'll always return you data yeah it's just did it actually apply the filters you thought it was applying i mean it's based on leucine right if i remember correctly it's that engine the underlying engine is kind of based on leucine and you know cobbling together 
the correct filter stream to get what you're looking for. Um, yeah. Like once you could do it, it was like very, very powerful and, you know, definitely internally helped us solve a lot of problems and really start to get really good understanding of performance and how things were actually behaving out there in the wild. Yeah, I remember once we had that Kibana interface set up internally, our customer support experience changed completely. No longer were we in the GitHub issues asking for logs. It was like, can you provide a room ID or can you provide a participant ID? And then internally, we could go to Kibana, input that ID and have a full picture in terms of events of what happened in the room. And we would be able to see, oh, the participant disconnected 10 seconds after they had an ice timeout. So they actually lost connectivity. Or we could see that applying an SDP or creating an SDP failed, maybe because of mismatched codecs. And we got a ton of value out of having that data source internally. And it didn't make sense to keep it internal only. I know there was eventually a, a product experience we shipped at Twilio all around voice and video insights. Yeah, I know 100%. I mean, that kind of led to, you know, where I knew that we'd hit on something that was like of high value was when I started seeing Kibana links making their way into the Slack support channels we had. And, you know, support could write in and say, hey, I've got a participant ID or I've got a room ID. The customers opened up a, a ticket with us, you know, what's happening? And then all of a sudden it was like, very quickly, somebody would turn around and, and drop that in, you know, a link to Kibana. The support agent would have all the answers they needed. They could turn around and, and let the customer know like, hey, so-and-so, you know, disconnected their mic at this time, or they pulled their headset out, or, you know, other times we would find bugs inside of Chrome or something else like that. There would be some mismatch between versions that just didn't work anymore and we'd have to put an advisory out there. But it very quickly became this thing that started solving, you know, real-time customer problems really easily. And then, you know, I think at some point we realized that, you know, the overhead of forcing a customer to write in when they're having an issue for customer support to take that issue, bring it to the back-end team or, the, you know, to the, the video team and say, hey, look this up in Kibana, like that costs us a lot of money and it also costs us a lot of time. It was like, well, why don't we just turn that into a product? And right. you know, why don't we take this data, start to build these customer facing dashboards and insights that they can self-service troubleshoot themselves. Um, right. And that's how we got there. Right. And so like we had all this, this infrastructure that we took for granted that gave us all this amazing insight, but we were kind of keeping it from our customers. And like, I think out of that is how those insight products came to life. And, you know, we ended up launching the very first one for client. We launched that at the London, was the one of the big events that we had, uh, the, the London Signals. I think it was the same time that we were launching the, the acquisition of the Corinto team. We also launched the first version of the Client Insights. Yeah, this product line was so interesting to me because the in-product analytics we could offer, they, they did exactly what you said. They unlocked self-service. They allowed our customers to troubleshoot. They allowed our customers to forecast too. Yeah. And it's interesting to me how this kind of feels like observability. But I think when we think about observability, we often think about an engineer using Datadog, for example, to operate a service. And we've used Datadog. We know there's limitations on cardinality there. 
some of the newer observability platforms try to solve for that, like Honeycomb. Yeah. But none of these are really focused on the customer-facing experience. The observability that we were building, it didn't stop with enabling us internally. We had to surface it in a product that our customers could use to actually operate their applications. No, I mean, 100%, because, I mean, this was, as I remember Zendesk specifically was starting to build out these call centers, and they'd come to us and, and said, hey, if you don't give us these capabilities, we're going to go somewhere else. Like, we don't want to have to go back and forth and, and have to send you room IDs or, or send you, you know, client SIDs and everything else like that. Like, you have the data clearly, make it available. Let us do this troubleshooting. Like, we're trying to scale out but we can't do it. Like we don't feel we have the confidence because we just we don't have that that information. And I remember, you know, when we first started getting that in the hands of those types of customers, they became very sticky, right? Because now they had the confidence on top of the platform to expand. They could troubleshoot. It wasn't like they they had this expectation that everything was going to be perfect, right? I mean, they understood the difficulties of you know sending audio and video packets over the wire. They understood the difficulties of of running these things in call centers. You know, dealing with maybe you know shitty computers, you know bad mics. I mean, they understood all that stuff, but it's like give yeah. us, give us that capability. So when something goes wrong, we can pinpoint it right away and fix it. So if uh, if an agent's mic is going out, or they're having you know call drops because of they're running other things on the computer, and the CPU is high and it's not processing the packets or you know whatever's going on there, like give us that ability so we can go fix it and not have to run around by opening tickets, like we should just be able to do that. And that was that was a big game changer. Absolutely. And this is a story I think we've heard play out time and time again at Twilio. So yeah. I know in my experience, when I moved to the Twilio wireless team, I moved to Berlin to work with Twilio Wireless. Wireless has a SIM card product. So actually, if you have an IoT device like a scooter or even a wearable or some kind of device that needs internet access, you could use Twilio SIM cards for these. But you can imagine a, a SIM card operator, or a, let's say a scooter operator, they also need insight into what's going on. Internally on wireless, we would have events around, when did a SIM card connect to the network? When did it disconnect? Which networks did it actually roam onto? And how much data did it use? This information was crucial for us to expose on wireless because although we could detect when a network was failing in some manner, it would ultimately be our customers who would want to actually steer the traffic because there's different costs associated with networks and there's different capabilities with different networks. And so I remember, you know, if one of our partners went down, customer might want to see from the events that their SIM cards are generating, which devices are affected, which networks can they roam onto based on the cell service? And insights just proves to be really useful when you have a customer that's operating your product. I mean, absolutely. I mean, you 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 all of a sudden like you have these these you know you got the SIM cards, you've got the wireless networks, you've got the devices, you've got all these things. I mean, that's a lot of data, right? And yeah. being able to quickly troubleshoot, understand that data, drill down into that data. Like it's crucial for an operator or for you know a, a developer to really understand what is happening out there because there's so many things that are now out of their control. So you go from 
you know, voice and video, which is generating a pretty significant amount of data. I mean, you know, how much more data is now coming out of as you move over to Twilio wireless and SIM cards? Well, let's just imagine there's a million SIM cards active. They're all generating usage data periodically. So periodically, a million messages is being produced. And besides that, you will have events where a bunch of SIM cards need to change networks. And so you'll see spikes. But th this was a lot of data that the SIM cards generated. And actually, this was a nice intro to how challenging building some of these systems can be. Because on wireless, we had a relatively high volume of traffic we needed to support in terms of events. We also needed to support near real-time reporting on these events. And the newest system we built on wireless, we actually built that on Kafka, and we used some other technologies internally to support querying that data. But I remember the kind of original version of the system, it used Elasticsearch as well. Yeah. And with the volume of data we were doing on the wireless team. And with some of our customers who had millions of SIMs, Elasticsearch just was not cutting it. I mean, we yeah. definitely got a lot of mileage out of Elasticsearch, but I mean, at, yeah. at some point, I mean, we broke it a couple times over in the video world. And I'm assuming you had to have broken it much, much faster yeah. in the wireless world because, just because that's sheer volume of data. Right. And these are kind of fundamental things. We talk a lot about how we want our API at Propel to be fast and snappy, but at the end of the day, your response time is proportional to the number of records you have to scan. Yeah. And if you have a million SIMs generating millions of events and you want to thumb all of those up, you kind of need to plan for that type of query in advance. You can't necessarily expect to just respond super quickly. A lot of the work we did in the new reporting API on the wireless team was just planning for the queries we were going to issue and making sure that whatever query we're going to allow a customer to execute has a well-understood plan for how to compute that aggregate and actually serve a result. So at that time, so those queries at that time weren't going to Elasticsearch, right? Have you, what did you guys evolve? Did you guys move beyond Elasticsearch and evolve to something else? Yes. On the wireless team, we partnered with the data platform team and an offering they had to, to serve these queries. So we would land our events on Kafka. Those would sync into the data platform team system. And then that was actually built on Apache Kudu, if I remember correctly. And we would issue queries to that. That took a lot of planning and foresight to get set up with. A lot of validating the schema, a lot of validating indexes and rollups. Honestly, a lot of things that inspired some of what we try to solve for today. So that team or yourself, you're having to do a lot of pre-aggregation in order to get sort of the types of windowing, the type of data, the, the data in the shape that you wanted it, right? So were you, were you, at that point, did you guys evolve to running a bunch of Spark jobs as well? No, we actually moved away from Spark jobs because it's so challenging to do that stuff correctly. Uh, okay. Okay. Because um, I kind of remember at one point, hearing about this sort of like crazy entanglement of, of Spark jobs that, that you guys had inherited and the, the yeah. spaghetti behind it. So, so there, there's actually two SIM card products at Twilio. There is the programmable wireless product. This is kind of the original SIM card product. That thing was using Elasticsearch, Spark, 
the new product is called Super Sim, and that's actually what we spun up the Berlin office for. Okay. And um, this one was all in on Kafka, all in on kind of streaming, avoiding pre-aggregation where possible, just because managing those Spark jobs, it's challenging. It's challenging to implement, test, debug, and yeah, w- wherever possible, if you can avoid a transform step, we, we think about ETL, extract, transform, load. If you can avoid an, or defer that transform step, it's nice because the transform represents an opportunity to make a mistake or to throw away some data that you're going to want in the future. Yikes. Yeah, that's a lot of trickiness there. So so here we are. You've been in now Twilio, what, seven, almost seven plus years? You've gained all of this experience and like a, a whole sort of like breadth of experience too, right? Because like originally it's like, hey, I'm working on APIs, client-side JavaScript. You at some point I remember saying to yourself, like, hey, I, I don't want to be just a client-side JavaScript developer. Mm-hmm. Let's start getting on the server side. So you make that transition. You start working at things on scale, you know, huge scale when you're in wireless team. What happens after that? So now you've got all this experience. You're there seven plus years. You're starting to look at, probably starting to think a little bit about what's next maybe. Tell me a little bit about yeah. uh, that part of the journey. Well, it always felt like there was a problem not quite solved here with the analytics on the wireless team. And so it just stuck in my mind. And I had now seen two examples at Twilio of these kind of in-product analytics features that needed good solutions. And yet, we never really had a self-service approach for solving for these. It always felt like we had to start from scratch or do a lot of up planning to get to a point where in-product analytics was attainable. So this was something that was kind of rumbling around in the back of my head. And I remember hearing that there were other use cases at Twilio that that wanted to solve for these things. And it was something I, I remained interested in. There really wasn't a platform that, at the time. I, I remember there being a lot of replication, right? And a lot of replication of, of not only the humans needed to build the solutions, but replication of infrastructure. Yeah, there seemed to be a few different approaches for this use case. And then some of the self-service features were lacking, let's say. so. Yeah, I'm very motivated by solving problems. And it felt to me like there was something to solve for here. And at the same time, I saw just how powerful events were. We saw that events were super useful in the voice and video products for understanding what was happening. And the wireless team, the events we published in Kafka were used not only for analytics, but for billing and even higher level product-specific use cases. So for example, if we saw rates of failures due to our events on a particular network, we could actually route around those networks. Or if we saw a SIM card using like an extraordinarily high amount of data, we could cut that SIM card off. And so I got really interested into using events and analyses you can draw from events to power product experiences. And while these things were rumbling around in the back of my mind, I remember you reached out to me, I think it was maybe December or January, and you shared a little bit about what you and Nico were solving for, which is a really seamless kind of in-product analytics solution. 
And immediately that resonated because I had just come off of this project in wireless where I kind of experienced at least the state of the art we had at Twilio at the time. And it left me wanting more. It left me thinking, yes, Tyler, Nico, I want to join you guys. Let's, let's build this thing and let's make it super nice. Let's make it point and click if you want. I mean, we, we work on Terraform providers and we, we kind of had this infrastructure as code approach we also support. But, but the vision was always do what might have taken months in like an hour or less yeah. with a few clicks. So this really resonated with me. Yeah, those those yeah. early days. I remember, you know, having the conversations with Nico as we're sort of ruminating on on the early underpinnings of what what Propel you know has become and what it's going to be. And you know, when I'd made sort of that decision to say, okay, I'm I'm leaving Twilio, and I'm gonna you know I'm gonna leave, kind of starting to think what that date looks like. I'd said to Nico, I go, I know our I know exactly the first person we're going to go after is, and I was like, we've got to go after Mark. Like Mark is exactly what we need from an experience standpoint, from a human standpoint, that that is gonna come in here and and just grok and get this idea. And I wish I remembered better like the first call I had with you, because I'm hoping that that early pitch was like, you know, I know you got it. Like you're like, okay, totally get this. But yeah, I wish I remembered a little bit better kind of what that looked like, but was definitely very excited to, to, to you know when we started that conversation. Yeah, thanks. I, I appreciate hearing that. And I was just so happy you guys reached out to me. That initial pitch was super exciting and and it remains exciting as we continue building Propel today. It was funny though, if I think about it though, I think it still we took like three months to, to, to get you fully uh you know, fully sort of ready to to, to make the leap. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think we had a, a few things to work out. I mean, I yeah kind of wanted to leave my previous team in a in a good state. And we also had the kind of German immigration issues to work through. And um, so it took a, a little bit, but yeah, we made it happen. I, I started, I think, early June. Yeah, I think it was early June. So now here you are, you're in, it's June, you've joined Propel. And, you know, we're kind of like, all right, let's get building. And, you yeah. know, so you, you come in with all these ideas, you come in with all this experience, sort of, you know, walk me through what those first weeks, months, like kind of what are you thinking at this point? Well, I spent a lot of time researching because we knew initially we wanted to go after Snowflake customers. How could we enable Snowflake customers to actually build product experience on top of the data they already have in their warehouse? So Initially, I just remember reading blog posts and really reading about some of the new approaches to managing data that were coming out. So instead of running Spark Jobs, could you just run DBT in a Snowflake warehouse? Would that give you sufficient answers and in sufficient time? It looks like a really clean approach compared to some of the, the Spark code I had seen in the past. So I remember brushing up on that. I remember reading about some other data warehouses. And then meanwhile, we were just kind of getting our AWS accounts set up, working in dev, deploying everything. It was also very, correct me if I'm wrong, at least for me, the experience of building here at Propel was very different than what we had before. Um, yeah. Because we really got to go in into like infrastructure as code, like we got to fully embrace it. 
here. Right. This is probably the biggest difference between how you and I develop now versus how we developed at Twilio. We are big users of CDK, which is AWS's tool for defining infrastructure as code. So when we talk about infrastructure as code, we mean in your code, defining the DynamoDB table you're going to use, defining the SQS queues you're going to use, defining the Fargate service or the Lambdas. We went all in on this approach and we went all in on co-locating our application code right alongside the infrastructure code. And if you contrast this approach with Twilio, at Twilio, usually you develop your service. And then if your service needs a database, that's kind of a separate task you go and perform. You go allocate the database. And oftentimes that's a manual process. Similarly, if you need an SQS queue, you, you leave the context of your code and you go configure an SQS queue somewhere. And so one of the things I really like about our model is if we need to add a queue somewhere, we can do it in the same commit or the same PR where we add the consumer of the queue, where we add the business logic for how to handle the queue. And to me, that makes iterating on Propel really fast and really exciting because the time between developing a change in my IDE to seeing its effect in our development environment is very small. Like it's it's not yeah. perfectly eliminated, but it's fast. No, I mean it's it's like you're sort of like time to experiment or you know time to to deploy and actually interact with what you've just done. I mean it's cut down dramatically, and you you like as a developer, I felt like so much more in control and so much more empowered to be able to like you know, stitch that infrastructure together to write that code, to bring all those things together and 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 have it up very, very quickly and then be able to interact with it from the standpoint of, of being a customer or consuming those APIs. And we save a lot on maintenance too. So for example, there's no clicking around in the AWS console to achieve things. We do it in the CDK code. We can be sure that when we promote our changes to production, it's going to be set up the same way or when we deploy to another region, it's set up the same way. And if we're ever wondering like, what uses this queue or what uses this table? It's in the same repository right next to it. So I think I really like this co-located approach that we've landed on. Yeah, it's been very powerful. I think it's also as we brought developers into the company, new developers into the company, you know, they've come on and you know, gotten up to speed very, very quickly. And and I think are able to produce very quickly, get into the code, understand the code, understand the infrastructure. There was always a separation, right, between what was going on on the infrastructure side. You had a lot of layers kind of on top of it before, whereas now it's like, like you said, it's co-located. So you're like, hey, here's my, my business logic, my application logic. Oh, my infrastructure's right here. Here's the things I need to consume from. Oh, that's really easy. Okay, I can see how that works. Yeah. So let's get into the events, right? You're kind of, uh, we were leading before we hopped over here to Propel, you were kind of talking a lot about how events um, and the use of, of events were kind of started to shape where we're at today. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, so there's this buzzword that's going around. Um, well, it's been around, event-driven architecture. Yeah. And I really got my first taste of it working with the wireless team. Kafka was a critical piece of our infrastructure there. And, and 
any kind of change in a SIM card or any kind of event generated by a SIM card would go to Kafka. And from there, we could decide what to do. We could fork it out somewhere. We could transform it. We could decorate it so that a, a downstream system would have more context. And this was great for building reactive systems. Similarly, in, in those first few days at Propel, I remember you and Nico actually shared with me an AWS video series. I don't remember yeah. the name of it. App. It's like app something. building. I think it was app building 2025 or, or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And this really resonated with me because they showed that using AWS, using EventBridge and Lambdas, you could also build an event-driven reactive system this way. And actually, you guys had, had landed on that approach before I even joined Propel. I remember the first thing we deployed was EventBridge. Mm -hmm. And what does that piece do? It, it basically gives us a central location that we can publish all of our events to. And we could subscribe to those events from a heterogeneous set of components. So if you look at Propel, anytime you hit our API and you ask for a mutation that could take, let's say, more than a second, if it's a mutation where we need to go in the background and, and do something asynchronously, we're pushing an event onto EventBridge that says user requested X to happen. And then we go and we have a pool of workers that subscribe to those events actually implemented on Lambda, and they'll fulfill that request, they'll fulfill that job, and then they'll publish another event when they're done. And this architecture works really well because, well, for a few reasons. One, we're never blocking API requests with long jobs that, that just take a long time before we can return a response. But it also allows us to scale out horizontally, like... I'm trying to think of an, a, an event that actually causes a, a number of things to happen. Well, for example, a sign-up event. When we get a sign-up event, that goes to EventBridge, and that tells us, okay, not only did a sign-up happen, but you should create an account. And meanwhile, we also send that account event to our analytic system. So everything we're doing internally these events are not only powering use cases, like the direct use cases where we say, okay, we need to go to Dynamo, we need to update something. They're also powering these insights use cases. Yeah. So every event we do, we can see, okay, how many account created events did we have in the last month? How many data pools did we have sync in the last month? How many queries did our customers run? You know, how in many the last queries? Month? Yeah. Because every right. single thing that takes place, like every interaction is an event and an event goes onto the bridge and that event makes its way, you know, through Snowpipe into Snowflake where we do all the DBT transformations. And then we bring that back out through Propel, you know, drinking our own champagne or, or eating our own dog food, yeah. have you, and right into our console with, with all of that data. Right. So that's why as an architectural choice, this event-driven architecture approach is so powerful. You get a very resilient way of structuring your system. So if, if we have errors, we can just retry the events, for example. And if things are taking too long, we're, we're getting visibility into our backlog of events that we need to burn through. But it also allows you to do the insights you just mentioned. It allows you to bill, for example, you can bill on events. And there are many other product experiences you can build on top of these low-level events. So it's very flexible. 
Yeah, I think, you know, before you joined, you know, obviously, uh, I think I binge watched most of those app building 2025 videos, like in a single evening, I stayed up like super late watching them. And I was I was sold like I went all in and yeah. in, in watching what they could do, you know, on that event driven architecture. And, you know, one of the first things that we did after watching that, I made Nico watch it. I, you know, I think I even dug up the Slack messages where I was like, Nico, you've got to watch this. Like, you've got to take a look at this. And, you know, it was super influential for us because we'd always thought about wanting to have these decoupled systems. We wanted to to have this very flexible, I think, sort of model and, and architecture that we could easily build on because we knew we would forget things. And one of the nice things about the events, right, is, is that goes onto that bus. You start to add consumers. Well, if somewhere down the road, you're like, oh, shit, we need to do something else with that event. We just write a new consumer. Yeah, exactly. And you just add it to the pipeline and, you know, maybe you transform it, you send it somewhere else, you decorate it, you know, you're influenced by it, but you've already got that sort of critical infrastructure in place to allow you to expand as your business needs expands, as your users needs expands. And, and it's, it's uh, I think for us was like one of those very early, you know, kind of like moments that, that helped define where we're at today. Yes, definitely. We've got a lot of plans uh, in store for using these events going forward as well. No, 100%. Well, Mark, we've been talking for almost an hour now, and uh, I, yeah. I think we could probably keep going for another hour. But, you know, I think for this first one, you know, you've shared a ton of experience. Super happy that you're here with us at Propel. It's, you know, we're coming up on two years now, or pretty close to it. And excited to see where this goes in the future. And uh, we'll definitely have you back on and we'll have some more discussions and probably get even a deeper technical dive into some of the stuff that we're doing here and some of the challenges that we've faced and uh, how we've been able to solve. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. It's been a pleasure and let's keep building. Absolutely. Thanks, Mark.